What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Welcome to Done by Law on 3CR 855am and also welcome to those listening via various podcast platforms or via streaming on 3cr.org.au. Your hosts tonight are Indra and Sue. It's just after 6pm on Tuesday, February the 1st, 2022, and you are listening to content that was pre-recorded on Sunday the 30th of January. We would like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the original and rightful custodians of the land that 3CR broadcasts from. We also acknowledge the first Nation's custodians of the various lands all of us in this program are joining from tonight. We pay our respects to elders past and present. We acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks, Indra. Sue here. So tonight, before we actually tell you what we're going to be talking about, we want to start with a quote and I'm going to read it. That's what everyone thinks. She was so loved. But if they really stop to ask the question, how bad would the physical, mental and emotional abuse have to be before you were content to walk away from all you owned, from your home, your possessions and all your money facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt? How bad would it have to be for you to stare down three and a half years of legal proceedings court dates, letters, police visits, difficulty in finding work, reconnecting with family and friends. How bad would it have to be? Nobody wants to ask that question. That's really what is behind every woman's fight. End of quote. That's a quote from the work of our wonderful guest tonight. Uh, From a woman who fled intimate partner violence and turned to the legal system for help. That's what we're discussing tonight. Although the legal system should be available to women for assistance, it's clear that in many ways it fails to do so. And for many, the time spent interacting with this system can be a lengthy and re-traumatizing experience. Tonight, To give some insight into this area, we are extremely privileged to be joined by Professor Heather Douglas, who is an expert on domestic and family violence and the law, and has recently published a book on this topic, Women, Intimate Partner Violence and the Law. Heather teaches and conducts research at the Melbourne Law School. She coordinates the National Domestic and Family Violence Bench Book. She is an elected fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia, as well as at the Australian Academy of Law and her expertise on domestic and family violence is internationally recognised. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks, Indra and Sue. I'm really happy to be here. Let's kick off some questions. How is your research into this area different from what's come before? There's been a lot of research into intervention orders. How's yours different? 
Yeah, look, my research really has been a big journey. So I, I started off with uh, uh, just looking at the law and then I started interviewing uh, people who worked in support agencies um, and I talked to lawyers. You know, this is over a sort of 20-year period. And I've kind of got to that end point where, well, the people missing in my projects, my research projects, have really been the people experiencing family violence and trying to use the law to respond to family violence. So that's really where I ended up. And I guess the difference with the recent project, in, which is reported in the book that you mentioned, is that it's an it's a overtime project. And this is often really difficult uh, with survivors of violence who are really vulnerable and um, nervous about getting engaged with these kinds of projects. Uh, but I interviewed 65 women, so it's quite a big group of women, uh, over about a three-year period of time. And I interviewed them about once a year over that three-year period of time. And it was also a really diverse group of women. So around um, of that 65 uh, women, there were around, uh, around a third of them were migrant women, people born overseas. And uh, there were also half a dozen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women also involved in the study. So I really wanted to try to get a really broad view of of how Australian women are engaging with law in response to domestic violence and see how that kind of goes over time, how they work with the law over time. So that's kind of where it was different, I think. So in other words, you were sort of tracing their kind of um, the life cycle of the intervention order process within the context of their lives and, and raising their voices about that life cycle. Yeah, that's true. And um, I think it's really important, though, to... And this is something I've done a lot of focus on is intervention orders or protection orders. But this study, I asked them about law, and that's a really interesting question to ask them too because it quickly becomes clear that women are engaging with a lot of bits and pieces of law, lots of different parts of it. So it's not just intervention orders. It's also the criminal legal system. It might be the migration system for some women. It's the child protection system. It's the family law system. Um, it's the sort of small claims trial tribunal it's um issues around kind of fi fines and so on that they have to pay that their partner has actually collected so there's all these different systems and that's part of the thing that you find with a project like this when you ask women about law there is so much law that is in their lives and that they're trying to navigate and it's so disconnected that's really uh, their experience that's really interesting that that breadth of um jurisdictions in listeners, that's what lawyer, us lawyers call the different areas of law that, that Heather was just discussing and that you don't think of that. You just think of someone who is, you know, fleeing intimate partner violence and, you know, that they need an intervention order and that's all that's happening. But it's actually what you're saying is much, much deeper and broader than that. Absolutely. You think of an area of law and there's a good chance it's going to have something to do with family violence, whether it's an employment law question uh, and issues around getting conditions sorted for their employment um, or making sure they're safe at their employment, so issues with talking to their uh, employers and so on. Uh, it could be social security. Um, it, there is just so much that these women have to navigate. And when you throw in um, also if you're from uh, a migrant woman here, perhaps on a spousal visa and your partner turns out to be violent, you're also dealing with that system as well. So although, yes, you've got all these different systems, it's obviously made even more difficult, say, when you don't have English as a first language and you're not familiar with the system. So that really makes it even tougher. 
And your point too, Sue, that um, jurisdictions, not only have you got these different jurisdictions of different areas, life protection orders and criminal law and child protection and family law, but you've also got state and federal. So you've got family law, which is the, is the Commonwealth system, and then and migration law, which is the Commonwealth system, and then all those other bits tend to be in the states. Uh, and if you move interstate, you'll have both state jurisdictions also with different laws. So women are having to tell a whole lot of slightly different stories to fit in with the requirements of all of these different systems. So it's incredibly complex experience for many of the women that I interviewed. Yeah, wow. that would, that would <laughs> just be so incredibly overwhelming just from a, even just like the, the logistics of all of that and, and being on top of oh. all of that. But I would imagine um, also just reliving, I guess, that, that trauma in so many different ways over such a long period of time would also be incredibly difficult. Is that something that sort of came out of the stories um, within, this, in, within this book? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that is that is a really common story for women, women, that they have to tell their stories over and over again to different people. So, for example, a lot of women, uh, for a lot of women in the study, not all, but a lot of women in the study, one of their first contacts with the legal system is obviously police who are coming to a call out and then who are assisting them to get a protection order. So their first conversation is with the police officer. They have to tell their story to that police officer. But if they've got kids, they probably will speak to a lawyer about making sure they have safe arrangements for the kids, tell their story again about that. When they go to court with the protection order, they may have to give evidence, so they tell their story to a magistrate. So the system really is, you know, it's not geared up uh, for people who've survived trauma. It really does uh, essentially require people to actually visit their trauma over and over and over again. And that's really problematic. And it's part of the problem of our systems, our legal systems not being joined up, requiring all of these different kinds of presentations for these different kinds of contexts. And um, I think we can really do a lot better in terms of, of trying to get better, more joined up systems. And I think we should really be aiming to try to do that. Yeah. It kind of strikes me when you're saying all of that and the complexity of it, you know, one of the most common questions is um, about women in these um, situations of intimate partner violence is the one, you know, well, why doesn't she just leave? Well, there's the answer. Look at what she has to go through. It's yeah. huge. Yeah, and that gets back to your kind of quote that you gave at the beginning, and that's kind of what that woman was talking about, all this stuff she has to do. Like, if she's going to leave, there's a lot ahead of her as well. It's, it's the next part of the journey. It's not the end. Leaving is not the end. It's the next part of the journey. Uh, and I think uh, what we know also, and women are very attuned to their own personal safety in these violent relationships, what we know is that uh, separation is one of the very most dangerous times for women. And um, that, that is identified as, as a risk factor for future serious harm and, and death. So, you know, women are conscious of this, I think. And so they're really careful about that, that situation of separation. And uh, that's why we know that um, women often take quite a long time to, to leave and to get everything in order so that they can leave. Uh, and also, once they do leave, they often return um, because, you know, they're trying to navigate all these systems, as I said, and sometimes it seems like an easier option is to just 
go back and try and live with it, sort it out, make it better. Uh, so yeah, it is it is really hard to separate. And in fact, that was another interesting thing about being able to talk to this group of women over time is some of them were uh, going back and forth into the relationship. And there are the system reasons that you mentioned, but there's also all of the human reasons like children, like love, like family pressure, like financial pressures and so on, like visa pressures. So there's a lot that, that women confront when they when they are leaving violence, there's there's a lot in front of them that they have to deal with. And I think those kinds of things became really clear to me. War is one part of that kind of response, um, but there is a lot going on uh, beyond that for, for women who are grappling with violence. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, in a way, the, the choice is stay within this system of violence or move over to this system of violence, another, another system, because it seems quite, almost like another type of assault, that complexity of the, the legal stuff that they have to deal with? Look, it, it can be experienced in that way, not by all women, but, mm. but by many of them. And, um, you know, another problem here, of course, is that um, women often don't have the resources or they don't have eligibility for legal aid across all of their system engagements. So they're finding themselves trying to navigate these systems by themselves when the abusive partner might actually have a, a lawyer. So there's that as well that they sometimes have to grapple with. Um, and the other point too to make is that um, the thresholds for getting access to legal aid are relatively low. And so if women have any assets, and usually this is the family home that is the family asset, and so that's the asset that, that is going to be uh, borrowed against to pay for lawyers, which really is a, a challenging question for women to confront as to whether they should do that because they're kind of, you know, eating in to, to their home yeah. and the potential for them to have sort of decent accommodation after the separation as well. So there's many dilemmas that, that face women in these contexts. And I think that uh, that's sort of another thing I'd, I'd like to see us uh, improve is, is that sort of fair and equal access to, to legal representation for women. Because I, I think that a lot of the women in my study were... Uh, picking around, getting a bit of legal aid here, paying a private lawyer for a piece of work here, maybe going to a community legal centre um, and really trying to scrabble together enough legal support, information off the internet. Sometimes women were asking me for information. Oh. So that kind of inconsistency and inability to, to get um, legal support and representation across their issues is, I think, another problem. And I think in the end, what, what that ends up doing is extending their engagement with the legal systems because uh, things are, are not, you know, the lawyer's not across systems, so they're not talking to each system and they're helping the woman navigate quickly and efficiently through all of the systems. I think that's yeah. a problem as well. Yeah. I think Indra's got a question for you. One thing that um, really struck me when I was um, having a read of the, the introduction of your research, I it was interesting that um, you mentioned that the legal system can be used as a tool by perpetrators of um, violence to further the abuse. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that, because I think that's something that's really interesting and something I yeah. hadn't come across before. Yeah, look, I, I, one of the other quotes really near the beginning of the book um, is that uh, 
one woman described the legal system as a hunting ground and she described her partner hunting her through the legal system. So uh, I think um, it's not uncommon for women to apply for an intervention order or a protection order and for their partner to do an, uh, a cross order, apply for protection as well, often with spurious complaints about non-existent violence. But that goes through the system and is dealt with and a woman often has to defend herself against that. And to, usually they're thrown out, but they still work the way through the system. Um, and also there are many opportunities for abusive partners to um, use the system by applying for changes to orders. So different conditions for family law orders, different conditions to protection orders. And sometimes they're just done for spurious reasons. Um, we have a situation where often uh, women who have eventually managed to separate from their partner uh, might have an intervention order, protection order, which says they can't have any contact. But guess where the one place they're allowed to have contact is, is the court. So often you'll find that partners want to get those women to court because that's where they can see them, be intimidating um, and um, try to exercise control over them in that context. Uh, so, you know, that's a real issue as well. So I had one situation where a woman had been um, in courts over six month period, 50 times. Oh. And um, those court appearances were mostly as a result of her ex-partner making applications of various kinds to courts. Now, it's a real dilemma wow. here because um, you want to be really careful about saying, well, we should shut off opportunities to make applications because obviously we want people to make be able to make applications when they're legitimate. So this is a real situation where uh, courts, and I do think they're getting much better at it, are setting up processes to try to determine which applications are kind of real and which are spurious applications just designed essentially to further uh, the abuse. So yeah, that is, it is definitely a real issue, the systems abuse uh, that is coming uh, as I said, partly before by the lack of connection and the fact that women feel like that, well, they have to tell their story over and over again and, and maybe they don't always get the best magistrates who understand family violence. So that can be one aspect, the sort of internal systems abuse. But this other is really abusive partners harnessing the legal system to continue their, you know, tactics of control and intimidation. So it's a very wicked problem. <laughs> For sure. It sure is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, also you, your research kind of explores four aspects of the relationship between law and separation for women leaving abusive relationships. Can you tell us a bit more about those four aspects? Yeah, well, the one of the last uh, sections of the book, the, I think it's the, actually the last chapter of the book, does go into this concept of separation because that was something that I was really interested in from what the women were talking about, uh, the difficulties of separation and so on, that... Um, you know, I, I didn't sort of, I don't think I realised how uh, complex it, it, it was um, uh, for women in terms of when they were separating. So I wanted to kind of highlight, I do highlight in the book, this dynamic notion of separation, that it's not a one-off thing, that it's usually a journey towards separation and not all women will separate. They maybe will be able to work things out and, and uh, the violence might stop. But for most of the women in my study, it was this journey, this dynamic journey towards separation. So I think, you know, we have a lot of situations where 
um, in the legal system, women might be asked, when did you separate? And women will be sort of effectively asked for a date of separation. Mm. And it's just not like that for these women. It's, it's um, you know, a lot of women were now not living with their partner, but they were going over to bring food over to their partner, or maybe they were getting lonely sometimes and they were still having sex sometimes with their partner, but they saw themselves as separated. But it was a very sort of complex idea of what separation is, not a neat end for most women. It was something uh, of a, more of a journey. Um, and also um, the, the sort of use of legal systems to, to bring women back together. I think that um, that's really interesting and in how the, um, yes, you're separated, but it's the law that brings you back together. I wanted to kind of highlight that. Well, also, what do you mean by bringing back together? Well, they're physically in the same space and oh. um, they have to go to their court processes together oh, they're in the same room um, and uh, they're often if they have to do various uh, processes through the family courts they're often uh, they can see each other so they're there together so uh, it's just these incredible opportunities for abuse um, and also just uh, the notions of separation within um, the family law and the migration act uh, separation is really important points in time for those two pieces of legislation, the migration legislation and the Family Law Act, and yet separation is not clear as we, we like to think that it is. So, for example, where women are on a spousal visa, for example, um, and they experience violence while they're on that visa, um, and they separate from that partner, then they can apply for a special exception under the migration legislation of family violence so that they can stay on as a permanent resident but not live with their partner, their violent partner. But they have to say they've separated. And, you know, that might not be so neat and simple for some women, even though there's violence and they feel that they are separating. So I suppose I wanted to, to highlight that. Um, I guess the other key thing in the book too that I really want to mention is the, the focus on non-physical abuse as well that was just really pivotal and I think that connects in a lot with um, you know the kind of debate we're having at the moment about coercive control it was certainly the experience of the women in my study at least two-thirds of them um, uh, were saying that the worst aspects of the abuse were the non-physical forms of abuse so the emotional abuse the financial abuse the isolation women talking about being isolated from their friends and family for example so they were really hard uh, for women to cope with during the relationship they were the sort of worst forms of violence for some women and um, even though physical violence might have happened at some stage in the relationship perhaps early on and set up the sort of threat of it uh, it was now the emotional abuse or the financial abuse or the stalking or the um, isolation that was the really worst part for them. That's so that, you know, when we all imagine someone who's, who's um, experiencing intimate partner violence, we, the first thing that comes to our minds is that notion of physical, you know, bruises and broken bones and stuff like that. But it's so, it's so Broad, so much broader uh, than that. You, yeah, that it's so interesting when you talk about emotional abuse. It's that's so hard to to see. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very tactical. The the abuse perpetrated by abusive partners is really directed at the vulnerabilities of that particular woman. 
so if if she um, is if she feels she's got body image problems, the emotional abuse will be directed at that. If she's got concerns about her mothering, the emotional abuse will be directed at that. So it's very targeted and strategic and and tactical. Wow, that's gee. <laughs> I would imagine it's also, you know, potentially really concerning when, you know, like you were saying, Sue, if that's what people think of in terms of getting legal help and, you know, magistrates having those preconceived ideas of what that violence looks like um, in terms of it being physical, it it must Mm -hmm. also create barriers in terms of accessing that legal assistance. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. I think there's still... Yeah, I still think there are professional people out there who expect to see physical violence and harm and bruising and so on. I think a lot of people have passed that in the system now, but I think there are still people around um, who see it that way, yeah, which is really problematic. Okay, so um, what what are the key ways that you that you see based on this research and these talking to these women and it's just so wonderful to have you know Heather's book has the voices of these women really raised um, and amplified so listening to those women how, what do you think the laws and the processes should should look like how should they be changed I certainly think, and you know, our systems to some extent already look at have coercive control. Um, so I definitely think that we have to be clear that we recognise coercive control as a form of family violence. I think that we have to also recognise separation as not a kind of moment in time, as more of a journey for these women. Um, and I also think we have to recognise that the system isn't the great white knight necessarily, and that we have to be on guard for it being misused. Uh, and try to m- minimise the harm that it causes for these women. Mm. Have you, you got another question there, Indra? Just sort of looking. <laughs> no, I think maybe to to finish on, whether was there anything kind of positive and any good stories that you that particularly struck you throughout this process of of you know doing research sure. that you could share. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things I saw was that um, if you don't have children in the relationship, it's a lot easier to to get away. Uh, so I guess we need to be really careful about who we have children with because having children with an abusive partner really enmeshes you in that abusive relationship. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much, Heather, for your time uh, and your and sharing your wonderful insights with us. And uh, that's pretty much the end of the show for tonight. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, And you've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR 8.55am, streamed on 3cr.org.au and available on various podcast platforms. Thank you once again, Heather. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And... Uh, Listeners, Done By Law will be back again next Tuesday at 6pm. Stay tuned now for the Voices of West Papua. See you later, Indra. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? 
or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter.